Good morning. Our New Testament reading for this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians and the Gospel of Matthew. Hear now the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Matthew 5, 1-12 Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lori, before you go back to your seat, I have something for you. It's a gold star for oh. attendance, for showing up when you're scheduled to read scripture. Appreciate that. So, yes, yeah. there you go. Appreciate that. All right. So, a couple of weeks ago, um, Lori was scheduled to read scripture and she forgot. Um, so, we gave her a do over today. Let's give Lori a hand for, yeah. Uh, cherish that gold star. In, in my family, an expression that we uh, have repeated for years is this you tease the ones you love. And so, Lori, you are loved. Um, a good number of you were at uh, my house, at Kim's in my house last night for the first anniversary of my 50th birthday celebration. And actually, that is another reason why we are a little thinner in number. There are some people who were at the party last night who told me to my face, yeah, I won't be there tomorrow morning. <laughs> that, my friends, is too familiar with your pastor. You know, 
But last year, all of our party plans were thwarted by a spike in the Omicron virus, and if your 50th birthday comes and goes without a party, did it really happen? No, I say no, which means I have been 49 for two years, and I've only now entered my 50s. Uh, there's a story that I've been holding on to for well over a year, waiting for a Sunday when the lectionary readings or the theme of the day might f- relate close enough to the story that it would make some logical sense for me to share it. And today, that day, has still not arrived, but I'm going to share it anyway. This took place well before uh, our move to Nightdale, when we were still living in our uh, townhouse in Apex. We had just learned one of the fun little features of our Alexa device, where you could say, Alexa, in 30 minutes, remind me, turn off the outdoor lights. And 30 minutes later, that warm timbre of Alexa's calming digital voice says, this is your reminder, turn off the outdoor lights. Well, one day, back in our pre-George days, Kim was pregnant and sleepy and needed a few minutes to lie down. And unlike me, Kim is not a champion napper. 15, 20 minutes is all that she needs or wants. And she headed upstairs to our bedroom and she asked if I could wake her up in 20 minutes. And so using my web browser, I opened up the Alexa app and I set a reminder on the master bedroom echo device to say in 20 minutes, you are so loved. I hope you had a great nap, which is exactly what it did. I continued working downstairs on my laptop, Kim was upstairs in our bedroom, and in 20 minutes, by the way, we never tested the computer audio, but if you could have that ready on channel 10, in 20 minutes, she heard the soothing digital voice of Alexa say, Here is your reminder. You are so loved and I hope you had a great nap. And from downstairs, I could hear Kim let out this quiet, and. And after the reminder went off, then um, Kim set the device to return the favor. And she told the device, in five minutes, remind me, I am the luckiest woman alive, and I appreciate you so much. But unbeknownst to Kim, the Alexa app was still open on my laptop, and I saw the reminder populate onto the list. And I also saw the edit button, and I had a thought. And I clicked edit reminder and ever so slightly changed the wording of her reminder. And instead of, I am the luckiest woman alive, I appreciate you so much, in five minutes, the reminder went off and this is what it said. Are we able to get there? It's frozen. We have a technical glitch that I am going to try and solve. That's strange. Okay, talk amongst yourselves. Um, we're going to figure this out. Pro presenter, let's end task and restart. I mean, this is just too, you have to wait for this. It's too good not to, uh, not to share. It should open up in just a second here. I saw you like frantically typing and I was like, something is wrong, something is wrong. Okay. I think we were here or yeah, okay. All right, so 
I'm going to back up like 30 seconds, okay? So I clicked edit reminder. I, I edited the wording, and instead of I am the luckiest woman alive, I appreciate you so much, this is what she heard. Here is your reminder. I am the sexiest woman alive, and you better appreciate me. <laughs> and from downstairs, I could hear Kim say, what? <laughs> and here's the thing. My rewording of her reminder was just close enough to the original wording that she thought maybe she just misheard what she just, what she just heard. But then, as Alexa always does, it repeated the reminder. This is your reminder. I am the sexiest woman alive, and you better appreciate me. Appreciate me. And again, from downstairs, I hear Kim let out this exasperated, what? And meanwhile, I'm dying downstairs, laughing so hard. And that, that will forever be one of my favorite memories of our time living in Apex, ranking right up there with the birth of George. I mean, it was fantastic. I listen to a podcast regularly called The Holy Post. The hosts of the podcast are Phil Vischer, the famous or infamous creator of VeggieTales, all depending on your thoughts on animated talking vegetables. Um, Sky Jatani, author and speaker and ordained pastor. Caitlin Chess, author, speaker, and THD candidate, and Christian Taylor, a film director and producer. And this podcast, the show regularly opens with some offbeat news stories about random happenings, and Sky Jatani, the ordained pastor among them, often gets put on the spot to turn whatever crazy offbeat story it is into a sermon illustration, because any pastor worth their salt can turn anything into a sermon illustration. And that is now my job, to employ some pastor pastoral sleight of hand to take this. Here is your reminder. I am the sexiest woman alive and you better appreciate me. And turn it into a sermon illustration. So here we go. And I may fail miserably, but I'm going to try. B before diving into our texts, if you were not here last Sunday, I would encourage you strongly to go back and listen to the message. If you follow our church Instagram account, I posted a quote there on Tuesday from CJ's message. As he shared last week, the quote has become a new mantra for him. Your self-worth will not be earned today. And with emotion, CJ shared how he is not immune to the ways that our culture makes us feel as though we need to prove our value and our worth daily. Hence this new mantra of his, your self-worth will not be earned today. It has already been given to you. And that is a liberating thought. So if you missed the message, go back and listen to it. But now moving into our text for this morning. I love the text from Micah that Joan read for us earlier. And I suspect many of you may have recognized that final verse. What does the Lord require of you? Thanks to an old Maranatha worship song that played prominently in my ch childhood, the words of Micah 6.8 will never leave me. They are etched into my brain forever. And some of you may know the song, and for those of you who don't, um, Megan and Lauren are going to come up for a moment, and we're going to teach you this short little uh, worship chorus. And by the way, if it sounds like it was written in the late 70s, we are doing it correct because that's when it was written. Um, so is Megan? Yeah, there she is, all right. Ooh, I am really out of tune. My goodness, all sorts of technical snafus this morning. My apologies. 
right. It goes like this. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Sing that last line. But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Give it up for Lauren and, and Megan helping me out here. I still love that song. What does the Lord require of you? Um, even though I have known that song for almost my entire life, in almost every period of my life, were you to ask me that question, I would have answered it differently. Uh, for example, from the years 1972 to 1990, ages 0 to 18, were you to ask me that question, what does the Lord require of you? I likely would have said, not sinning. And in particular, not lusting, my most besetting sin from ages 10 to 18 for sure. Um, growing up in the country home of my youth, I had this super cool basement bedroom. And why was it super cool? Well, I had a computer. I was one of the few kids that I knew that had one, an Atari 1200XL, which boasted an impressive 64 kilobytes of memory. And for perspective, your smartphone likely holds about 4 million times that amount of data. And this was back in the day when computers were sold without monitors and you needed a switch box connected to the VHF terminals on the back of your TV in order to use it. And raise your hand if you have any idea what I'm talking about. There are a few of you. Yes, awesome. I had this little 12-inch black and white TV for my monitor and it was awesome. And if I wasn't swinging across alligator pits playing the epic adventure game of Pitfall, I was experimenting with writing code in BASIC, or creating math quizzes, or using the draw function to enter XY coordinates to create drawings of cars or maps or throwing stars. Why throwing stars? Because when I was 11, I briefly thought ninjas were the coolest. And all of this is wonderful and fun and innocent, but at night, once I could no longer hear the footsteps of mom and dad, I would lay a rolled up sweatshirt or pair of jeans across the bottom of my door so that no light would escape into the hallway, and I would turn the switch box back into the TV position, and I would watch late night TV. And usually it was relatively innocent stuff like reruns of Cheers or Taxi or Happy Days, but one Saturday night, a James Bond movie came on. And I saw the opening credits to a James Bond film, and I was changed forever. <laughs> a story that I seem to share about once every five years is how I lost one of my Calvinist cadet corps, it's basically Bible club for young boys, one of my Calvinist cadet corps merit badges. A good friend of mine had found a couple of weathered, sun-bleached, um, I'm not sure how to say this on a family-friendly Sunday, Hugh Hefner magazines in the ditch near his house in the, in the country, and I traded one of my merit badges for a few pages from one of them. 
and to an 11-year-old boy, literally the best trade ever. Um, and as a Calvinist, I didn't even really feel bad about it. It was obviously predestined to happen. Um, now, of course, that is not actually true. I did feel bad. For most of my youth, the way the church taught and encouraged purity to young people was to equate anything sexual with sin and shame, which means almost every child who grew up in the 80s church grew up feeling ashamed. And so, yes, each of these exciting moments were followed shortly thereafter with soul-crushing guilt. What did the Lord require of me? Not sinning, and I was failing miserably. Move forward to the years 1990 to 2000, Bible college and my first years in ministry. Ask me then what the Lord required of me, and not sinning had been usurped with correct thinking about God. It turns out that sitting through hundreds of class hours studying systematic theology and signing up for street evangelism as one's primary field education assignment, that has an impact on you. That'll shape you. My motives behind signing up for street evangelism as a 19-year-old Bible college student were certainly noble. I loved Jesus, and I wanted other people to love Him too. And armed with my correct thinking about God, I was just the right person to tell other people how to get saved. If there was a time in my youth when I might have thought that faithfulness was measured best by how loving or how kind or Christ-like you were, loving your neighbor as yourself, by the time I got through Bible college, that had been firmly replaced with a new set of metrics that measured, one, how correct my thinking was about God, and two, how many people I could get to subscribe to my correct way of thinking about God. And over time, however, the more I read the Bible, the more it misbehaved and did a very poor job of affirming my correct thinking. Jesus even poked holes in my understanding of salvation. In Luke 19, a tax collector agrees to give money back to people that he's stolen from, and Jesus says, salvation has arrived, and he didn't even ask Jesus into his heart. In Mark chapter 2, some friends lower their sick friend down through a thatched roof, and Jesus says to the man lowered down, son, your sins are forgiven. And the man hadn't done or said or prayed anything. In Luke chapter 23, a thief hanging next to Jesus just says, remember me. And Jesus tells him that they'll be together in paradise. In Acts chapter 22, Jesus blinds Saul on the road to Damascus, and suddenly Saul becomes Paul, super-Christian, and apostle to the Gentiles. Four stories and four completely different paths to salvation, and not one of them prayed the sinner's prayer. And none of this aligned with my street evangelism training, where all I had to do was meet a stranger on the street and strike up a conversation with them, and in three minutes or less, steer the conversation toward their death and where their soul would spend eternity. What does the Lord require of me? Prior to 1990, not sinning was my answer, but I failed quite fabulously at that. And during the years 1990 to 2000, correct thinking about God was my answer, but that also seemed to be a bust. The only person in the history of the world who has ever thought perfectly about God 
was Jesus himself. The rest of us are all heretics. It's just a matter of degrees. Enter Y2K and the next decade, 2000 to 2010. What does the Lord require of me? And up to this point, if there has been any overlap in the stories that I've shared of my faith story and your own faith story, I suspect that the overlap will end here. There'll be less overlap. Uh, This decade, 2000 to 2010, was the church growth decade. This was the decade of conferences at Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, and Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, and New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina. What does the Lord require of me? As a pastor, basically, the Lord required perfect church. But perfect church as defined by the prevailing megachurch movement, which means really great, creative high production value worship with moving lights and hazers for smoke and phenomenal graphics and distraction-free environments because eternity hangs in the balance. And I served two different churches during this decade, and both churches took many of their cues from the megachurches of the day and the conferences those churches held, teaching others how to be like them. And for the record, it would be foolish and misleading to lay the blame for this misguided emphasis of the two churches where I served simply on the leadership of those two churches. This was the water that we were swimming in. This was the air that we were all breathing. Churches not doing this were the exception. And I was, I was in. I was all in. This was also the decade when I recorded a worship CD And don't think for a second that I didn't have visions of grandeur, of becoming the next Chris Tomlin, selling out stadiums, because I did have those visions. In 2004 and 2005, the Canadian Gospel Music Association included two of my songs on their compilation albums showcasing Canada's best worship music released during those two years. You can clap, but there wasn't a lot of worship music released during those two years. Um, And this only served to add to my conviction of what the Lord required of me. Give me a hazer machine and a couple of moving lights and a pair of distressed jeans and a tailored button-down shirt, and I'll show you what the Lord required of me. And this was fun for a little while. I heard a sermon by John Ortberg near the end of this decade. He had been one of the pastors at Willow Creek, but left to teach elsewhere. And from experience, he talked about the heavy burden of holding up this way of doing church and how when you embrace this model, the next week always has to be better than the last. And that's a lot to hold up. You barely take a breath at the end of one Sunday experience before you've got to throw it all back over your shoulder, and do it all over again. And he shared something that he had discovered after 30 years of ministry. Jesus holds himself up. He doesn't need our help. Last week, CJ movingly shared how liberating his new mantra has become for him. Your self-worth will not be earned today. This issue of your self-worth has already been settled and decided, not by you and not by your peers, but by God. As a worship leader in 
high production value churches for 10 plus years where I felt the weight of carrying that experience upon my shoulders, a weight that was, by the way, self-imposed and church-imposed, but never God-imposed, to then hear the words, Jesus holds himself up. It like broke me open and became the new mantra for ministry that I wanted to embrace. What does the Lord require of you? 1972 to 1990, not sinning. 1990 to 2000, correct thinking about God. 2000 to 2010, perfect church, as defined by the megachurch growth movement of that era. So what about 2010 to present? What does the Lord require of me? That's a little harder to answer. At times, I've lived as though the Lord required me to be an angry deconstructionist, questioning and critiquing everything that I had ever thought or knew about church, and then to feel superior to anyone who wasn't doing that. And by God's grace only, at other times, the answer to that question, what does the Lord require of me, has had brief hints of something more Micah-like, to do justice and to love mercy, and to walk humbly. But of course, I vacillate back and forth because being an angry deconstructionist also has its pleasures. What does the Lord require of me? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Before Micah's beautiful answer about justice and mercy and walking humbly, we read an archival list of all of Israel's previous answers, all of the things that Israel thought God would want them to bring before the Lord. Shall I come with burnt offerings, offerings that where the whole animal is consumed by the fire and nothing is saved for food? These had been a long part of Israel's story, and according to Leviticus 22, 27, calves and lambs that were eight days old were used for this type of offering, burnt offering. Shall I come with calves a year old? This is a step up from burnt offerings. A one-year-old calf was, of course, more costly of an offering than a calf eight days old. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? And again, this escalates another step up. And for the Bible nerds out there, this may call to mind the story in 1 Chronicles 29 where Israel's most famous worshiper, King David, does this very thing. He sacrificed a thousand bulls and a thousand rams and a thousand lambs at the temple. And we keep reading and the escalation continues. Will the Lord be pleased with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? And here the escalation steps outside of the bounds of reality and describes a sacrifice beyond measure, one that no one could actually offer. But this over-the-top idea, it sets up the next suggestion, which is also a sacrifice with a cost beyond measure, but one that Israel sadly had done in its past. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. This was a common practice among, among Israel's neighbors, but it also found its way into Israel's own story. And if you're curious about that, read 2 Kings 16 and 2 Kings 21. 
Jewish faith tells us that these verses, Micah 6, 6 through 8, were used as part of public worship. They form what is called an entrance liturgy, words used at the beginning of worship or as a worshiper enters the temple. The psalm that Joan read for us earlier is another perfect example of this liturgy, this entrance liturgy. The worshiper says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? And the priest responds, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from the heart. And this is the format of Micah 6, verses 6 to 8. In the first two verses, we read what the worshiper says, what the worshiper asks. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then in verse 8, the priest responds, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I suspect that these verses were developed into a liturgy to be used in public worship by the Jewish people, used over and over again in worship. I suspect they did this because this was something they kept forgetting. Their natural inclination was to think it was something else that God wanted from them. But this repeated liturgy was God's way of saying, it's you, not something that I am after. And now, for the sleight of hand pastoral maneuver turning my Alexa story from earlier into a sermon illustration. For Israel, when they asked their question, what shall I bring? They had an expected response in mind. What they expected to hear from God was something like this. This is what you should bring. Sacrifices. Lots of sacrifices. And all the Baptists in the room just lost their minds a little because I kind of made, just made God's voice female. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Um, but that was what they expected. Bring sacrifices. Which is, but the answer they got from God that Micah gives was completely different. Micah says, This is what you should bring. Bring yourself. Which is a beautiful summary of what Jesus is telling us through the Beatitudes that Lori with her gold star read for us earlier today. Prior to meeting Jesus, the idea the disciples had in their mind of the future descendant of David, the coming king, the Messiah, was that they would need to bring their zeal and their might and possibly even a sword to help bring about the restoration of Israel and a military takeover of Rome. But Jesus' kingship is not of this world. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, no, just bring yourself or more specifically, bring the life of heaven in you. Bring peacemaking and mercy and justice-seeking and meekness. And like Kim at our old townhouse in Apex, they were all like, what? 
pastoral sleight of hand sermon illustration maneuver complete. <laughs> to close, uh, before we pray and move toward communion, listen to this beautiful quote from N.T. Wright. He says this, the life of heaven, the life of the realm where God is already king, is to become the life of the world, transforming the present earth into the place of beauty and delight that God always intended. And those who follow Jesus are to begin to live by this rule here and now. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. And I will add, that is the point of the text from Micah as well. It is a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future, because that future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. Let's pray together. Holy One, perhaps we need to create a new entrance liturgy to repeat over and over again, to remind us what it is you require of us. It isn't sinlessness or perfect thinking about you or perfect worship, none of which we can ever achieve anyway, nor is it sacrifices. It's just us. Holy Spirit, help us bring ourselves to you that more and more of the life of heaven of justice, mercy, and humility comes alive in us and through us comes alive in the world. Amen.